Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline. And today's episode is called Harry Podcast and Weasley's Wizard Wheezes. Today we will be discussing the atmosphere of the burrow, the complex character of Percy Weasley, and Harry's fatal flaw. So this chapter picks up right where the last one left off, with Harry arriving by flu powder at the burrow, and he meets Ron's eldest brothers for the first time, Charlie, who works with dragons in Romania, and Bill, who has a ponytail and an earring and works at Gringotts. Mr. Weasley gets there shortly after and scolds Fred and George for their behavior with Dudley, um, but then gets anxious when Molly comes in and wants to know details of what happened. Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Ginny all escape up to Ron's room. Harry is filled in on the fact that Fred and George are trying to start a joke shop business that they are calling Weasley's Wizard Wheezes. The group then runs into Percy on the stairs, who, according to Ron, is obsessed with his new job at the Ministry and his new boss, Mr. Crouch. Once the fighting between Molly and the twins subsides, the crew goes downstairs to help with dinner, and Molly complains out loud to them about how Fred and George are wasting their talents. The whole family has a nice summer dinner outside, and conversations include the upcoming World Cup, a missing ministry employee named Bertha Jorkins, and a, quote, top-secret event that Percy hints will happen later this year. In a quiet moment at the table, Ron asks Harry if he's heard from Sirius, and Harry replies that he has— but decides not to tell him about the content of the last letter that he wrote them. Okay, so I think that this is really one of the best chapters for the Weasley family kind of characterization. Yeah, definitely. um, And atmosphere of the burrow and then all of them within it. Um, It's one of the only times we see the whole family together, really. Um, Mm -hmm especially having a good a good moment so um, yeah i think the next time we see them all together is at bill's wedding right that's what i was thinking Mm -hmm. so you know we finally meet all the members of the weasley family and we kind of get a good sense of everyone's personalities i mean we we've already met a lot of them but i think that even if we hadn't met them before just kind of this chapter is a microcosm of everybody's personalities interacting with each other and yeah definitely you get a good sense of who they are, or at least, you know, the broad strokes of what they're like. Particularly, I think, how they interact with each other. I think that's maybe the most interesting thing about that. It's not just, like, their own personalities in a vacuum, but it's, like, how do they bounce off of each other? Yeah, so we see... So, I mean, if we're kind of giving, like, one-sentence descriptions of, of everyone based on this chapter, it seems like, you know, Bill and Charlie are the ones we haven't met before, so Bill is, like kind of counterculture he like has a ponytail and an earring woohoo <laughs> and um and you know he works at the bank which seems kind of you know counter to that but he's he well we but see he him... is a curse breaker he's not like a banker he's like a he okay. goes into like ancient tombs and like make sure that it's safe to get the treasure out of them you know oh that's I mean? cool do they talk about that in i think they mention it okay um, yeah i forgot about that um and then Charlie, but Bill and Charlie together both seem very, like, kind of mischievous and, like, they're, they're you know, playing, like, putting the tables up in the air. And... Yeah, clearly the twins took their inspiration from Bill and Charlie. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's interesting to us because we've always thought of Bill as this, you know, Percy-esque figure, you know, who mm-hmm. was prefect and head boy. 
Um, and Charlie was like captain of the Quidditch team. You know, they seemed like golden children. Mm-hmm. Um, but in fact, they're they're more like Fred and George, but with just like a Percy level of academic talent. Right. Or in right. Charlie's case, you know, Quidditch talent. Um, but yeah, they, they both have really great careers. Mm-hmm. They're both like well-adjusted people. So it seems like they got out of this family like really well. And we can see that also this gives everyone a lot to live up to, which is interesting when we think about the younger kids. Um, you had a good idea to talk about these characters in relation to Molly's character in this. Yeah, I think chapter. Molly is the most powerful personality of the whole group. And so sure. seeing the way that she interacts with everybody, I think says a lot about what they're like. So the first interaction we kind of see is between her and Arthur. So mm-hmm. Arthur, when he gets home, he's he's trying to like use the threat of Molly mm-hmm. as like leverage against his own children who don't really respect him as much. Right. Um, because he's not the authoritarian, like punishing parent. He that's Molly's job. Right. So when he's trying to parent them and, and punish Fred and George for what they did to Dudley, um, he's like, You you know, I'm gonna tell your mother about what happened. Yeah. And they're like, oh, okay, like this is actually serious. We're kind of in trouble here. Right. But then when Molly actually comes in and is not just like a vague threat but is a reality arthur suddenly collapses and he's like oh uh (laughs) i didn't actually mean to follow through on this threat i was just like he thinks that molly is gonna punish them too hard yeah and so like he's kind of using her authority to strengthen his own but but then he's actually kind of afraid of how much he's gonna punish his children also right yeah and i think that he you know he's also kind of a little bit more empathetic to Fred and George, even though he is genuinely mad about what they did. He probably thinks it's kind of cool that they're inventing stuff. You know, he's into, like, muggle gadgets and things like that, so... Right, and and I think part of the issue for him with this particular case is that, like, they're abusing a muggle, and yeah. his whole job is about, like, getting people to stop abusing muggle muggles. Yeah. Um. So he he feels like almost a hypocrite that he's, like, you know, his own family are, right. are doing that. But, like, he knows that it wasn't, like, truly malicious, um, that they weren't trying to, like, really hurt Dudley or anything. They just thought it would kind of be funny and that um, they would get to test their product on somebody. Um, right. And so he kind of knows that, but at the same time, it's it's very, like, triggering for him that this in particular is what he has to punish them for. Um, but even even despite of that, like, Molly is, is going to go so overboard, he thinks, because as we can see in this chapter, she is extremely upset about the whole idea of them starting a joke shop, mm-hmm. the twins. And so anything that even remotely relates to Weasley's Wizard Weasley's just completely sets her off. Yeah, she hates it. And, I mean, I think it's interesting now that we have also meeting Bill and Charlie in this um, chapter because we see how kind of how well we've done they've done, like we said. And, yeah. um, you know, they seem to kind of respect her. But also, you know, resent her. He's like, come on, mom, like, leave me alone about my earring and that kind of thing. Yeah. And and, and the hair, like, that that ends up being a thing that she talks to him about multiple times That's in the true. series. Yeah. Um, and, and Charlie gets less of that. I think he's just such an independent person that, that Molly doesn't even see the point of, like, trying to like bring him back into the fold, if, if that's even a thing. Right. But the twins are at this moment, like you said, she's... She is really upset that they're doing this. You know, it, it was this thing that they did in secret, spent so many months on and, you know, didn't realize what was happening. And she, like she says, like, they're smart. I don't know what they're doing. You know, she they're wasting their lives. She feels like they're their wasting lives. their lives because they didn't get very many ordinary wizarding levels. Yeah. And they spent all their time instead on trying to invent things for this joke shop idea. Um, but she feels like that's a waste of their talent. And I mean, and- if we just think about it in terms of like 
just a regular non-legitimate family that is mm-hmm. a big family that's poor and struggling, you know, usually if your kids are able to go to school, you want them to do well at school, do well and get a job. Like Arthur has like a stable job in the ministry and like yeah. Percy now has a stable job, which we'll talk about. So I think she's probably just worried like all parents are when kids want to do something different, but it is, it is a big conflict between them right now. Yeah. And, and unfortunately um, she is not able to understand that like their career is not going to be in the ministry. They would be so bored with the bureaucracy of that. Yeah. And in the wizarding world, it kind of seems like your options are really either like go into business for yourself, work at Hogwarts or work at the ministry. It's true. It's, so, there's not a lot of options, which seem yeah interesting. So but... there's not a whole lot of like careers and, and it, it'll be interesting next book when we see the career advice chapter mm-hmm. about like McGonagall and, and sort of Umbridge also giving Harry advice about what to do with his life after Hogwarts. Right. Um, and he's immediately drawn to being an Auror at the ministry. But there there really isn't a wide field of different options. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's interesting. But I think uh, another salient point here is that Fred and George end up being the most successful right. children in this family. Um, their business completely takes off. Um, although Fred is is killed at the Battle of Hogwarts, George's success with the business just goes on and on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe he even brings Ron on as like a partner later on, mm-hmm. something like that. Um, but yeah, they, they end up being wildly successful with this. So in spite of her trying to curtail um, this idea like at its inception, they are incredibly successful. Right. So it's interesting also because we're going to talk more about Percy um, in a minute, but I think... You know, Percy is kind of her golden child. Um, yeah. For Merlin, she's like, he's perfect. You know, so he's sort of like, he's like Bill and Charlie, but he's very straight, like not at all counterculture. And doesn't so break any rules. She's like, I don't have to worry about him. Listens he's to great. everything that she says. Yeah. And this is, you know, kind of a problem that we'll talk about soon. Um, Ginny is, you know, not super developed as a character at this point, but she's the only daughter, so she's she's the youngest, so she's special. And this is really the book where she starts coming out of her shell, mm-hmm. I think. So yeah, that's definitely, um, we're definitely starting to see that a little bit more. Because she's the only daughter, I think Molly does dote on her to some uh, extent, but it's not the same way that she dotes on Percy, mm-hmm. where everything he does is perfect. It's more like... She's going to let Ginny do whatever she wants because she doesn't want to, like, box her into this one idea. And Ginny definitely takes that and runs with it. Like, because Ginny can get away with anything, she pushes for more independence wherever she can. Right. She does. And, you know, she – it's obviously this is, you know, common as well, but she treats Harry and Hermione much better than her own kids because they're, like, kind of her surrogate kids. You know, Harry doesn't have parents. Hermione's parents are muggles and – they seem to yeah. not be that involved. So she, you know, she's very, very protective of them. And of course, there's this whole idea of like Harry being the whole world's golden child. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And even though he is not like perfect or anything, but um, she kind of feels like protective of him as a mother because he doesn't have yeah. parents. Um, and then Hermione, of course, who has her own family and is very well adjusted. But um, Molly still loves her just as much as any of her own children because she's such a positive influence on Ron. Um, and Ginny to some extent, and, and she's such a good friend to them. Yeah, and then Ron is kind of just, like, wrapped in with Harry and Hermione and Ginny, and I think she, you know, she loves Ron, and she is, you know, kind to him most of the time, but she's also just like, oh, Ron, like, don't get involved with Fred and George, like, don't get, you know, stop being, causing trouble. She wants Ron to be more like Percy and less like Fred and George. Um, yeah. She wants him to look up to the, the good role model instead of the not good ones. 
But the fact that he's the youngest son, I think, also kind of makes her baby him in some mm-hmm. ways. And she still thinks of him as a child, and, and he's growing up. He's 14 now. Um, so Ron does kind of resent that attitude a little bit. He wants more independence, but she's reluctant to give it to him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But let's get back to Percy, because we mentioned him. I, I, th- I don't think we've done him justice yet. He gets the most characterization of anybody in this chapter. Yeah. And we, we started to talk about him, well, we've talked about him each book because, you know, I think he's a really interesting character to track throughout the series, but this is... But he is more of a side character in those first ones. For sure. He's he's very much played for laughs, and he still is in, in most of this book, and um, especially now, but we are starting to see a darker side to him, and reading this, you know, obviously reading it after having read the series many times before... I think during this read-through, I'm seeing more of those things yeah. early on. So it's interesting because he is re- sort of rebelling, I think, in some ways against the norm of his family, which is very easygoing, even if they expect a lot from the kids. They're very warm. They're very all joking with each other, you know, um, I th- very I just happy. think he, he's kind of a mama's boy. Mm-hmm. Like Molly is very strict and like wants people to do the best they, they can all the time. And Arthur is more relaxed and non-confrontational and jokey. But the atmosphere of the house, the because the sort of cumulative effect of the siblings is like yeah. all very kind of jovial and close and like we're going to joke around and play tricks and yeah. we're all going to be together. So in some ways he is rebelling against that. Yeah. norm that other people have said like he's not following in bill and charlie's footsteps because they were cool mm-hmm. he has decided to be completely uncool and like i'm only gonna follow the rules and just try to achieve however much i can and it seems that he is the one that has a more of a class issue with the way that they yeah have been raised like i would suspect that he is ashamed of their kind of financial status and acts acts accordingly sort of acts like i'm up in my room doing important work and i i will like deign to come down and eat with you but i'm not really interested in mingling and i want to pretend to kind of my ministry friends that i'm different not only from my family but specifically from arthur who also works in the ministry and he really tries to distinguish himself in that way it's definitely given him a complex i think percy sees himself as capable of achieving anything um, and because his chosen field is the ministry, he wants to be minister of magic someday. Mm-hmm. Um, but he feels held back by not just his own family's like poor status, but by Arthur, whose reputation in the ministry is like um, eccentric, is and- eccentric and and not a politician. You right. Know, he right. is a career bureaucrat who really loves his job. Right. Um, and Percy is a bureaucrat who has pol- political aspirations. Um, and so on the one hand, he's he's trying to get past Arthur on the career ladder and and use whatever he can to like get there. Um, and on the other hand, I think he really resents the fact that he was born into a situation where he had a disadvantage. Right. And, um, and, yeah. and his own arrogance, because that's what it is. Like, it really comes out in this chapter. He is so full of self-importance. Um, I think it's, it's partially a, a, a defense mechanism against that whole, like, resenting his own situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and partially it's, you know, a malignancy in his psychology that has come out of all these different things and that has turned into, like, a, you know, I will do whatever it takes yeah. to fulfill my own destiny or perceived destiny, whatever that is. And whoever is above me, like, an authority figure that I respect in the ministry, like, in this case, Mr. Crouch, 
um, just in general, he's like, whatever they say is important is important. Mm -hmm. And whatever, like, gossip they have, you know, he's uh, putting down Ludo Bagman, which we'll, like, hear more about later. But he's like, oh, he's not doing his job right. They haven't even, Mm -hmm. like, found Bertha Jorkins. And he has no concern for Bertha Jorkins, which we obviously know. Um, he should be concerned about right. his her only, whereabouts. His only concern is that it makes the ministry look bad. Right. That Ludo is not doing his job. And again, we see highlighted here his his almost um, pathological need to have an authority figure to tell him what to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and he embraces that extremely hard, this book. And I think at the end of this book kind of realizes that maybe that's not the way to get ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least for the entire like book of Goblet of Fire, that's what he's doing. He's slavishly adhering to what he perceives as his master's wishes. Mm-hmm. And in you know earlier in life that was Molly, and mm-hmm. now it's uh, it's Mister Crouch. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, I made a note that Percy's one of the tragedies of the series, and I think that's really yeah. true because obviously things get much worse for him and with his relationship with the family and the, the kind of side that he inadvertently takes and uh, you know there's obviously more things to talk about later on and how he you know may attempt to redeem himself but it's still um it's really sad because you see like this is someone who's sort of not not morally in line with the moral center of the book that we can mostly find there yeah i mean even if molly is like very rule adherent and strict she has an extremely strong moral center right? Um, where she knows what is right. And that's why she's so strict is because she wants everybody else to do what's right as well. Whereas Percy starts out, you know, believing that if you follow someone's authority, that you can do no wrong. Mm-hmm. Because if you follow a morally just person like Molly, then your actions will also be morally just. But as he starts getting worse and worse masters, Molly and then Mr. Crouch and then Cornelius Fudge. Mm-hmm. I think what he doesn't realize is when you follow those orders without any critical thought or um, respect to whether their moral center is correct or not, um, you can get into a lot of serious moral trouble. So when he's following um, Cornelius Fudge's orders without question, he ends up forsaking essentially everything that he ever believed in to start with. Right. And realizing that maybe he didn't really believe in anything, he was just following orders the whole time. And then it's only at the end of the series where he really has that realization of mm-hmm. that he was wrong. And right. that, you know, you have to make your own decisions and stand on your own two feet. I think it's important to mention here that um, Bertha Jorkins comes up and Harry doesn't put two and two together about it. I know. I was wondering about that as well. Like, you know, he remembers, we we hear that he remembers immediately after the dream um, what is going on, but he, or remembers the name, right? Yeah. But maybe he hasn't retained that or maybe he never really makes that connection. Could be that he's forgotten it, but it's 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 good here for the reader because the reader will we know. will theoretically yeah. remember it. And so it what it does in this instance is it lends um support and credence to the idea that Harry's dream was something that really happened. Right. And that also that this is something that is being at least in some ways, being overlooked, maybe for different reasons, yeah. but that this is not something people are that concerned about. Um, to Percy's credit, he points out that people should be paying more attention to this. True. Um, and it may be for the wrong reasons. As we've mentioned, his reason for pointing this out is to make Ludo Bagman look bad, right. not to 
make Bertha Jorkins, uh, you know, not because he cares about her. Um, but as we're going to see, you know, her disappearance goes from, oh, she probably got lost on holiday to mm-hmm. this is a serious issue um, to now we're treating it as a murder investigation um, because she's been gone for so long. So over the course of the book, that definitely does evolve. So this chapter definitely belongs to the Weasley family, but there is an, I think, an interesting aspect of Harry's character that we've already seen this book um, where he initially does not write to Sirius about what happened with the dream or the scar. And even in this, in this moment, you know, he doesn't tell Ron when Ron asks him, Mm -hmm. um, you know, have you heard from Sirius? He, it's, he's not exactly lying. He's just kind of omitting his, his last, um, communication with them. But it's something that we'll see, I think does change a little bit later where he starts to be really open with Ron and Hermione, but he still will at, at, like, critical times not reveal information because he doesn't want to um, upset people or he thinks, like, you know, he needs to still think about it before he wants to burden anyone else with it. Um, But, you know, this is often, like, his fatal flaw where if he had just talked to somebody about something earlier, you know, some consequences might not have happened. And usually once he gets Ron and Hermione involved in things, they can figure out solutions faster and, you know they can at least support him through this, but he's not, he's not doing that here. And I think that probably is a mistake. Yeah. I think if this series were a tragedy, Harry's tragic flaw would be that he always tries to do things on his own. Yeah. And, and to shoulder the the burden of whatever situation is he's in all by himself. But every book he kind of learns that he has to rely on other people sometimes, but also every book he also <laughs> learns that sometimes he has to go it alone because yeah. there's no one left to help him. Um, right. you know, in, in source, in Philosopher's Stone, he has to enter the the final chamber by himself. Right. Because Hermione can't cross it with him. Right. Um, in Chamber of Secrets, you know, he has to go on and rescue Ginny himself because Ron and Lockhart get trapped behind the rubble. Um, in Prisoner of Azkaban, he realizes that he has to save him and Sirius from the Dementors himself because his father yeah. isn't coming. Yeah. Um, so it's all these times when like, yeah, he really should be learning about teamwork, mm-hmm. but then also the, the world keeps keeps reminding him that sometimes you really do have to act on your own. And that he is, you know, kind of cursed in this way to not be able to to have to do things alone at the end because, yeah. I mean, we'll see that completely in this book. Um, and, and it impacts his psychology. I think, like, Hermione's point um, in the fifth book about him having, like, a saving people thing mm-hmm. that then kind of persists for the rest of the series, Harry's kind of indignant about that. And, and we as the reader agree with both of them because on the one hand he does kind of have a complex about needing to be the hero um but from harry's point of view he's only ever done that out of necessity right you know it's not like he's rushing in charging into a situation on a horse saying i'm gonna save everybody and i'm gonna do it all by myself and no one help me it's that he needs to do those things because otherwise worse things would have happened well i think well we'll definitely keep talking about this theme in the rest of this book and obviously the series but i think there's times where he goes definitely overboard in that direction during the tournament especially and you know obviously later on so there's there's a lot that happens yeah i I think it's definitely true that as the series goes on that if you want to call it a pathology it gets worse but i think it's important to, to notice that like at least in the first three books that was out of necessity, almost purely True. out of necessity. Um, and so it's only really in the back half of the series where we start that start to see that become a problem and, and something that gets a little bit out of control. 
one thing to note with this, you know, kind of flaw of Harry's is that I think it's similar to Dumbledore um, in this way, and we'll see that a lot more later in the series, but that, you know, Dumbledore does a lot of secret keeping for, you know, necessary reasons, definitely, but then sometimes we can question whether those reasons were necessary, and also, like, if he had shared things, would things have gone differently? So they both they both sort of have this and they do it with each other and yeah. it makes things difficult for sure. Yeah, and, and I think ultimately it comes from the same place of not wanting to hurt other people yeah. with this information. Dumbledore definitely protects Harry from information that would have really helped him because Dumbledore is afraid of, of what hearing it will do to Harry. Right. And vice versa, Harry protects Dumbledore and, and others from information that he thinks will worry them too much mm-hmm. or that they might think he's going crazy or things like that. Um, but ultimately, yeah, they, they end up, um, doing basically the same thing for the same reasons. Thank you all for listening to Harry Podcast and Weasley's Wizard Wheezes. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter. If you have thoughts or questions about anything we've discussed today, especially our characterization of the Weasleys, please email us at contact at theharrypodcast.com. You can find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes at theharrypodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for next time when we grab on tight to Chapter 6, The Portkey. I'm Madeline. And I'm David, and we'll see you next time on The Harry Podcast. Knox. Knox.